Tax Banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of experts, practitioners and guests to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Michael Bode, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by fellow Tax Banter trainers Leanne Hayes and Michael Mesner, as usual, in addition to Mr. Adrian Sham who is a tax director in Singapore and is going to be giving us a few insights into some of the tax systems over there. Adrian, welcome. Tell, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thanks, Michael. Um, so my name is Adrian Sham. Uh, you can probably tell by my accent I'm not Singaporean, So, my, but my name obviously sounds like I'm from Asia. Uh, my background is my parents are from Hong Kong. Um, I grew up in the UK. I was born in Scotland. Um, as a wee lad, as you can tell by my accent. Um, and I started my tax career in Grant Thornton in London uh, just about 15 years ago. Uh, so in London, I was, you know, a global mobility tax specialist dealing with expats. So dealing with corporates mainly uh, and all the expats that they send cross border. Um, I was also specialising in UK and US tax, because obviously one tax is not fun, you need to do two at least. So I did UK, US tax, and on the US side, being one of the limited number of specialists in, in the UK, I uh, expanded onto the high net worth area over there. So um, I was, you know, doing all my tax, two taxes, having having fun in the UK, uh, and then yeah. tap on the shoulder from my from my boss and said, have you ever thought about working in Singapore? Um, we had a previous member firm in Singapore um, and they left the network, so we were starting up from scratch. So it was a great opportunity to come over here, um, explore the food, explore the culture, and you know, interject every so often with a bit of tax. Um, so I made that move back in July 2015, so just shy of five years ago. Um, I came over, um, in, uh, started up over here, and, and now I'm one of the leaders in the Singapore tax practice. So I actually cover broadly anything to do with people. Um, it's probably the easiest way to explain it. So interesting. All, I've got many hats. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure. One, yeah. yeah, so one side I do employer stuff, or, uh, so lead employer solutions team. So expats, share options, uh, payroll, employment taxes. So all of your pay-as-you-go type and fringe benefit type stuff equivalent in Singapore. Quite a wide gamut. Quite a wide gamut, yeah. it sounds like, yes. Yeah. So now that, that sounds like the official line here. Now, Michael Mesner here know, has known Adrian for many years. So um, perhaps you could give some insights <laughs> into I the backstory. <laughs> I've been dying to do this. In fact, I've been looking forward to this podcast for about a month since we first decided to have Adrian on the show. And he kindly agreed. Thanks again, Adrian. And I have to advise all our listeners out there, that posh English accent, um, Ladies, unfortunately, he is taken. So uh, while you can send us an email um, with requests, requests for photos and contact details, I'd advise you to go through the official channels. LinkedIn, he's unfortunately taken. Having said this, Adrian, um, I'm absolutely fascinated. I remember I met you in Singapore in 2015. You were, so to speak, fresh off the boat at the time, and you saw it all as quite a bit of an adventure. And I, at the time, was wondering, geez, this guy obviously knows his stuff. 
in the UK, UK tax law, um, which is somewhat similar to Australian tax law. So therefore we assume you are a guru on Australian tax law to some degree as well. Um, US tax law, which means you must be a very, very patient person dealing with a lot of forms, having fancy names like 475K, 484F, et cetera, et cetera, W8BEN and so on and so forth. But really, how did you feel things went in Singapore tax-wise? To us, this is all this, oh, low-tax jurisdiction, not a lot there. Tell us a bit about it and, and why is the law operating the way it is? Is it common law? Is it statute? Is it a mix? What's it trying to achieve? How does it look like? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you make there, having gone from two countries which have extremely complicated tax systems uh, to a country which clearly has a much simpler system and is, uh, obviously the tax rates are much lower as well. Um, so why did I come over here from a tax perspective? Well, I guess um, dealing with expats uh, in the global mobility space, there are a number of hubs in the globally which are quite key for our, our industry. Um, and Singapore was one of those hubs. So most of the corporate engagements we have, most of the companies we deal with, will have Singapore as a base. Um, and obviously my my ethnic background from North of Asia or North Asia, um, I, I hadn't had the opportunity to explore South Asia, um, and I know a little bit about a little bit about Hong Kong, um, just purely out of personal interest, uh, given my background. And so I was curious to see what Singapore had to offer as well. Um, Singapore is a bit like Australia, I guess, in some respects. Um, fundamentally, it started off with a tax act which copied the UK tax act. Um, in the interim time, the UK tax act got a lot bigger, whereas Singapore hasn't really expanded in the same way. Um, so, you know, even if you're an Australian coming over to Singapore, there's, there'll be things that you immediately recognize in, this, in the Singapore tax system. Some of the concepts are very similar um, it's a common law system, presumably like Australia. I recall a very similar situation with Papua New Guinea where you could just grab the tax books from uh, the, yeah. the master tax guide from, from 10 years earlier and replicate it, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's not quite, that's quite the same. No, I, I suspect <laughs> you're right. Singapore probably started off very similar to that, but obviously as time has gone on, it has evolved and developed. Mm. Um, and one of the things coming over here is very clear is, and you can probably see that by the economic um, development, is that it is a small country. Um, it is a country which has developed very rapidly over the last 54, 55 years. Um, and it has got a political system in place and a party in place, who's been the same party throughout, who are very good at um, deciding what they want to do, or what they want to achieve and setting out a plan to achieve it. Um, it has been very successful that way. And even on the tax side, you can see that they, they've, they've made a system where they want it to be relatively clean, relatively simple, um, what, and there's not too much opportunity for dispute, but it's tax. There's always people who are going to be disputing tax. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Um, so one example of this, one clear example of this is the GST Act. Um, so Singapore introduced the GST Act. Um, it decided to go down the very clean route. Um, so when you talk about indirect taxes, New Zealand is one of the countries which has got the cleanest um, or the most straightforward GST rules. And Singapore decides to go down that route. Um, it didn't go down a similar route to the UK. UK basically says, you've got the standard rate GST, 
you've got some reduced rate, you've got zero rate, you've got exempt, and then you've got a list of things which are in the zero rate, but then you've got a list of exceptions, and then you end up with funny tax cases like, is a Jaffa cake? Do you have Jaffa cakes in Australia? <laughs> we do. <laughs> is, it a, is it a cake yeah. which is standard rated, or is it a biscuit which is zero yeah. rated? Yes. Um, we don't have that in Singapore, basically. 7% all the way across. Um, there's some exemptions, mainly financial services, um, property, I believe, and maybe a few others. But it's very, very simple in that respect. And and when you speak to the IRS officers, um, at the time they were introducing it, they they had this vision in mind and they didn't want all these cases. They didn't want all the cloudiness in terms of is it 7% standard rating at the moment or is it zero? They just wanted to make it clean and simple. So yeah, um, it's a common law system. You've got IRAS, the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore, who basically governs it all um, as you know the independent party. Um, and dealing with IRAS is very different from dealing with HMRC, the UK tax authorities, and very different from dealing with IRS in the US. Um, I don't know what the ATO is like, my only experience is they're quite aggressive. Um, but if you deal with HMRC and IRS, the UK and US ones, IRS are a bit backwards. Um, they, when, I, when I was practicing it, in, in, when I was in London, they were still using fax machines. Um, HMRC um, were good, um, but because of the complexity, they were very specialized as well. So I typically deal with the personal tax international team over there. Singapore, Singapore, the IRS website is probably the best tax website that I've seen. Um, there is so much information on there. It makes it life a lot easier for um, people coming to the country. Very easy to follow, very easy to find information out. Um, however, because it's so simple, when you, when you have complicated matters and you try to contact them, um, they don't have specialists in the same way. And therefore, for really specialized service lines, it can come slightly trickier. Uh, because in the HMRC, I'd speak to a specialist. So easy conversation. They've dealt with this day in, day out. Whereas here, you'd speak with a, a more of a generalist. Um, so very different conversations, because to a certain degree, you may need to educate them to a certain degree. Um, they're all technical specialists. They know tax law, but it's not to the, t the, the, the tip of their tongue. Yeah. Is, um, is, I mean, yeah, you really needed to worry about a lot of these things. I mean, that's one of my perceptions yeah. about it. When the tax rate is so low, is, is, is tax planning less relevant, <clears throat> at least within a, within a company, at a company level? Yeah, you're right to a certain degree. Um, tax is lower, yes. Uh, and tax planning yields less, so to speak because reducing your tax potentially from 17%, which is the corporate rate here, to zero, versus in Australia, I don't know what the rate is, 50, 60, 70, joking. Uh, whatever your rate is, 30 30%. 30% by default, yeah. if you're small business. To zero, then it's, a, it's obviously a different ball game because you've got a bit more bang for buck in terms of mm. tax advice in Australia. So you're right there. But at the end of the day, well, and then there's the simplicity. I mean, is, is, your, is your tax reconciliation ludicrously small? Yeah, Much yeah. smaller, yeah. <laughs> uh, But, you know, whenever, whenever there's a way to try to minimise tax, people, humans, 
Asians especially, I think, we're always trying to minimize tax. Uh, that's a worldwide trend. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when you say simple, yeah, you're right. So dealing with US individual tax returns, I'm sure you've seen a couple, you've probably parked it away whenever mm. you see them, mm. but they can run into hundreds, 200, 300, 400 pages, depending how many states Entirely are. Entirely unintelligible. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah, there's a whole different conversation. Um, in Singapore, the individual tax return is probably two pages, three pages max. Really straightforward. You're right. Um, but one of the dif- one of the big differences I've found is Singapore. Uh, sorry, US, UK, and Australia. Um, you have self-assessment. Um, so it is the individual's um, obligation to self-assess their taxes and pay the tax by a certain deadline and file the tax returns. Mm. Um, and as part of that, you've got a pay-as-you-go system in Australia, a pay-as-you-earn system in the UK, and a withholding system in, in the US. So one of the things, one of the challenges I've had with some of the expats coming here is they need to learn a bit of financial planning because there is no withholding tax in Singapore. <laughs> so if you're... <laughs> Evidently, so if you're from the UK and spending all your money on credit cards, then you might be doubly screwed. Um, so one of the first things, there's no withholding tax. So whatever you get in your bank account, you do need to remember some of it might belong to the government. The second funny thing about this is there's no self-assessment system. So if you take me as an example, I arrived in July, August 2015. Um, so my, my pay for... August to December, I receive gross, no withholding. We have a social security system, which we'll touch on later, but it doesn't apply to expats. It only applies to uh, Singapore citizens and PR, which so it applies to me now because I'm now PR. Um, but no withholding, so I should get the full amount in my in my in my bank. Um, so end of year comes, end of so we're calendar year. We're not some funny end of June or funny fifth of April type system. So. End of December comes, um, tax return is due by 15th of April or 18th if you file online, and 30th of June if you've got someone like myself helping out as a tax agent. So I file my tax return 30th of June or just before being a tax advisor, I want to take it as long as possible. Um, 30th of June 2016. Not self assessment, so I don't owe any tax at that point. And IRAS will then calculate my taxes based on the information I've provided and send me with a tax bill called a notice of assessment. Typically, they send one to three months to do that, but they do sometimes take longer, especially for new expats. So I received my first tax bill in March 2017. (laughs) So 18 months after I arrived, I received my first tax bill. And um, you can pay that up front, or say you can pay that in one lump sum when you receive that bill, or you can apply for a gyro, which is a bit like a di- monthly direct debit. So I applied for a gyro, and they spread it over 12 months for me. Mm. Um, so I didn't finish paying my first month's tax bill until, what, 20, 30 months later. What happens to expats that suddenly uh, decide to leave? Very good question. Very astute question there. So, um, Sneaky mind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's obvious you were a tax advisor in the past. That's all I'll say. Um, So to, yeah, there's a big risk there, obviously, of people leaving the country and not not paying their taxes. So one one way they get around this is they mandate, um, they push some of that responsibility to the employer. And they do that by, if you've got an employee who's leaving your employment, 
Singapore employment or leaving to go abroad, then they need to conduct tax clearance. And there's two parts to that. One is there is a withholding, not of tax, it's just a withholding of anything that's due to the employee, be it salary, bonus, expenses, time off in lieu, whatever it is. The second part is that they, the company needs to file a tax clearance, um, generally at least a month before the individual departs. And basically, once that tax clearance has been submitted, IRAS will turn it around very quickly um, and issue a tax clearance directive and a, and a notice of assessment to the individual. And basically, the employer who's withhold the money, let's say they withheld five grand, if the liability was four grand, then the company will pay the four grand over and then release the additional thousand bucks to the individual. On the flip side, if, it, if the liability was say 15,000, the company will pay the 5,000 over and then the additional 10,000 IRS will chase the individual. Singapore is one of the only countries, if not the only country that I'm aware of, where the tax authorities speak to the immigration department pretty instantaneously. So if you've got an outstanding tax bill, um, so it doesn't have to be tax clearance, it could be any tax bill. If you've got an outstanding tax bill, but this comes up more with tax clearances, and you try to leave the country, you'll be stopped. Um, you'll be taken aside and asked to pay the liability or, or prove that you've made a payment before they let you out of the country. Um, and Singapore doesn't forget is probably a good way of phrasing it. Um, so I had one of my colleagues in, in the Netherlands they called me up and they said, and I'm not going to do a Dutch accent. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but they basically said to me, hi, Adrian, um, we've got a HR person who's just traveled into Singapore um, with a colleague because they were doing some work here. Um, and this colleague's been taken away by the immigration department upon arrival and made to sign a document. Uh, can you have a look? So this guy left Singapore 15 years before and didn't pay his taxes. So upon returning, he was made to sign a document saying that he would contact Iris and settle all of his taxes before he left the country. And wow. so, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I have current clients uh, who, you know, in the airport trying to leave, so um, I've been stopped. They've told me I've not paid my taxes. Can you help? Um, and obviously... A number of my clients are all expats where the company may be paying the liability. So then there's a frantic call to the US headco. Have you made the liability? Have you made the payment? Can you prove it? Can you send us, you know, uh, details of it to let the CEO in that case go? <laughs> so yeah, there's it's it's a country where you're right, going back to one of your earlier questions, it's a low tax jurisdiction. Um, it's relatively straightforward, simple. Um, but it does have its nuances. So, you know, being stopped at airport means you don't want to be on the wrong side of IRAS. Mm. Brutal in enforcement. Um, exactly. And the nuances, because it's slightly different from, say, the UK, US, Australia, you come in thinking you know the, the rules, and then the slight tweaks mean that you need to adapt to that. Um, and yeah, so, and also the, the specialist part. You know, if you if you have something which is slightly more complicated, in my opinion or in my experiences in the UK, I found it easier to engage with um, HMRC and find an answer out at a, on a quicker scale. Whereas in Singapore, I found that a bit more arduous, a bit more uh, a bit more painful, um, especially where you talk about foreign tax credits for individuals, and also if your tax return is not in the square box that they've set out, 
Foreign tax um, credits for individuals. Yeah. Why, why are we having foreign tax credits for individuals if it's largely territorial system? Uh, yeah, I didn't touch on that. So, yeah, you're right. It's a largely territorial system here. Um, but it's not a pure territorial system, is the first comment. So mm. if you compare Hong Kong and Singapore, Hong Kong is a pure territorial system. Whereas in Singapore, if you've got foreign income, it can still be taxed if you bring it into Singapore. Yes, if you bring the yeah, so it's like a modified territorial. For individuals, predominantly it's territorial. Um, but then for individuals, when it comes to employment, which is a lot of work, um, a lot of the work I do, obviously if you start physically doing work duties in other countries, then foreign tax credit issues may pop up or um, mm. double taxation agreement issues. Yeah. So although you're being paid in Singapore, as Singapore employment, if let's say I come to Australia and do some work, ATO wants some tax. Um, obviously, there's a tax treaty which might exempt me, but in some cases it won't exempt me, and then I have to pay Australian tax and claim a credit in Singapore. And because there's no self-assessments, I need, as part of my tax return, even though there isn't any boxes for it, I need to provide um, an analysis of the treaty saying I'm eligible for. Well, I have to pay Australian tax. I'm eligible for foreign tax credits. Here it is. Whereas in the UK, you just there's a foreign tax credit page. How much income subject to foreign tax? Twenty thousand. How much foreign tax is paid? Four thousand. Automatically calculated, no questions, unless they do an inquiry. In Singapore, because it's self, it's not self-assessment. You have to provide it to the IRS officer. They need to analyse it. They need to be comfortable with it before they will grant the foreign tax credit, mm. which makes it more complicated. In Australia, we have a lot of discussion from the tax office on what's called a tax gap, the difference between mm. the tax that they think they should collect and the tax that they actually collect. So it seems here that it's almost a sort of reverse tax gap. Yes, that's one way of putting it. Um, and they're, they're very detailed people. Um, uh, you know, Singapore's got a great education system um, and they like their detail. Um, so much so that I've got a current situation where we've got um, an individual who used to or is employed in New Zealand, used to work in New Zealand, but relocated herself to Singapore. Um, ignoring the PE issues at the moment, because she's residing here, she's taxed her. Um, and because she's paid in New Zealand and employs in New Zealand, any time she goes back to New Zealand, she has to pay tax in New Zealand on those work days. So in Singapore, we're filing full tax credit for New Zealand days. So we filed this return. Um, we provided a copy of the New Zealand return. We provided all the documentation. Um, the IRS officers come back to us and said um, she can't accept the claim because the numbers on the, on the New Zealand return don't match. So uh, the New Zealand return, um, the income that's been apportioned to the New Zealand workdays is $17 off. This person earns over half a million dollars. Um, so we're trying to figure out why it's kind of off, um, maybe different ways of apportioning income, work days versus total days. Um, and, you know, I, sp I spoke to the officer over the phone and said, look, it's $17. New Zealand taxes are like 30 odd percent. Singapore tax at the top is 22 percent. And she's not even at the top rates. Um, even if we adjust it down 17%, hey, I'll I adjust it down $500 if you want. It's not going to make a difference. Um, but she's asked us to reconcile it and provide proof that we've amended a return in New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it is, as, going back to your comments earlier, Michael, it is simple. 
the tax system, but sometimes dealing with a non-self-assessment system, I'm going to park it because it's non-self-assessment. Um, the authorities may be a bit more, shall we say, anal about their approach uh, in terms of getting ticking all the boxes. Mind you, Adrian, um, that, that, that's some fascinating um, uh, overall scheme here that that you're that you're narrating. And um, I think one important thing for my many years in Singapore is just um, compliance is expected from a taxpayer. There is no scope for being cute and uh, trying to achieve an outcome. Um, we discussed amongst each other a case uh, last week about a taxpayer who started off claiming a deduction of $100,000 and said, oh, you know, this is a negotiation basis. Let's see where we go from here. Um, mind you, it was an extreme case. But in Singapore, that doesn't seem to be an option. And, and you mentioned something important earlier, public service. It's an honour to be promoted into the public service. They're high-paying jobs um, with, with not just job security, but uh, very high-paying and, and very highly acclaimed jobs. And, and also what happens from a non-compliance point of view and obviously there's a couple of elements here you have a narrow tax base and you also mm -hmm. have a uh, lower overall set of tax rates which we'll touch up on shortly but mm -hmm. the other thing and, and that justifies there's less tax payable therefore it should be easier to comply but yeah. there's no scope for non-compliance in Singapore I had a, um, a friend who I went to university with doing my um, honest degree in banking and finance with and he had first degree honours, first class honours. And um, as part of that, he was invited to join the um, uh, government in, in, a, in a public service role. And he chose to join the prison service. And what he does on a daily basis now, having worked for the prison service for about 15 years, um, he specialised in caning people. There's still a penalty of caning with the right arm cane. And um, that's what he does four days a week. He only works four days a week. Um, he arrives at 10 o'clock at Changi Prison, which is just a high rise building with windows but you could look out the windows and see the sky so for that reason there's a concrete wall all around the sides of the building there's no air conditioning you don't sleep on pillows you don't sleep on a mattress and um, if you don't behave you get caned and that means that is his specialty um, he just practices all day long how to cane people every morning he gets a fresh pig's cadaver and just canes it and he has to do it in a way so he can hit as hard as possible without the skin breaking open because he told me once that happens you don't feel the pain anymore and you might pass out and then it's not punishment anymore um, amongst that kind of treatment for non-compliance i think it's quite obvious to see why everyone is complying and and uh, reconciling down to the last 17 dollars <laughs> and despite there not being any withholding um taxpayers are willing to oblige with um, their tax obligations yeah, you make some really, really good points there, Michael. There's so many points you made there. Um, just, just touching on a few of them. Um, we've actually got a general election um, this Friday. Uh, so you talked about uh, public officers being paid well. Have a guess how much the Prime Minister is currently being paid. Oh, I can't remember, but he's the highest paid politician yep. in the world. However, yep. there is no, I think it was something like $5 million a year, but there is no speaking what? engagements afterwards. There is no um, benefits in, in industry and whatnot. Once you are no longer prime minister, you are out. You cannot benefit from anything you have done before. Yeah, he took a pay cut. So it was 3 million in 2011. It went down to 2.2 million. And, and the idea behind that is so that there's no corruption. He's been paid well enough. There's no risk of him being corrupt. Um, this is in a country where PAP, the Public's Action Party, which you know has been in power since it became Singapore independent, um, they've never lost 
an election. Uh, the previous election they did relatively well, or they were happy with, um, because in 2011 they had a really bad outcome. They only won 60% of the votes. Only won 60% of the votes. <laughs> so 2015 they got 70%. Um, and I, I did a bit of digging. In 2001, I think, they won the parliament without a vote being cast because not enough opposition contested all the seats. Hmm. So this year's, I think this year is one of a few years where every seat is, is actually being contested. Um, Hang on, Adrian. Uh, this is important. Why is it? Is this political pressure or are the people of Singapore happy with their government? Uh, I need to tread very carefully what I say here um, because obviously I'm still sat in Singapore. <laughs> and um, so I think on one hand, the government has done really, really well since, you know, um, it, it was founded uh, 50, 54, 55 years ago. Um, and it just continues to develop. So a lot of people will just vote PAP for that reason. Um, there is a growing amount of um, people who are opposing the, the, the main party um, and trying to, you know, throw out different ideas. But, you know, I looked at the, I looked at all the manifestos. There's not a huge difference. Um, and even if you take the main, the main opposition, um, the Workers' People's Party, um, they're often referred to as PAP light because it's basically the same manifesto slightly to the left. Um, and and their, only, their, their aim was to win a third of the seats, but they're not contesting a third of the seats. They're only contesting, I think, 21, of, 21 seats of 93 this year. Um, so, yeah, even if they won all the seats they could, they couldn't form a, an opposing government. Um, an opposing government could only be formed if if there was a union between the other opposing parties. And I guess, you know, it's a country which, you know, if you ask someone to name things that they relate to Singapore, um, punishment would be high up, as Michael has suggested. Yeah, um, caning is still here, public flogging is still here. And the other thing is, is fines. It's a fine city. So some of the more well-known ones is if you're naked in your own house, you could be fined. If you're chewing gum, you could be fined. If you if you jaywalk, uh, you can be fined. Um, I've known someone, well, I don't know them personally, but I've known a client who couldn't get an employment pass, a work permit for someone that they wanted to hire in. Um, you know, British, if that matters, but British, you know, middle office, well-paid. Uh, and on the third attempt, the third appeal, they asked him to contact Ministry of Manpower, Mum over here, affectionately named. Um, and Mum basically came back to, yeah, the decision is right. We're not going to overturn it. And they said, why? Because you broke the law. You jaywalked three years ago. <laughs> so they denied it. Oh, well. Yeah. And then obviously with COVID at the moment, um, uh, there's obviously lockdowns, although we've started to to phase out of those lockdowns. But during the lockdown, there were a number of um, expats who were drinking in Clark Key, Bloke Key area, one of the expatty drinking areas. Um, and alcohol was being served because they were allowed to serve it for takeaway, but they were just standing on the street corner drinking. Um, and they all got taken to court. Um, of the, I can't remember how many, let's say there was nine of them, 
eight of them have had their work passes revoked and fined, I think it's between five and $10,000. The other person was a permanent resident, so has just been fined and PR hasn't been taken away from them. So with all the strict um, enforcement and the strict rules, um, and given that their education system, in my opinion, is very top down, the government um, tells their people what to do, almost stifling, you know, independent thought to a certain degree. Um, you can see why the general population would just follow and um, adhere to the rules and not, you know, try to cheat the system. Um, you've, you're in a country where, you know, it's doing very well, you're looked after, um, you've got a lot of good things, why mess it up? Yeah, you might have to pay 22% tax. Mm. So what you going to do? Go to Australia and pay forty-five percent or whatever it is over there. Forty-seven, correct. Forty-seven percent. Well, yeah. But everything that's being said here is extraordinarily relevant for anybody that wants to go over and work there, or who wants to go over there for the tax reasons. You know, these are these are yeah. definitely things that need to be kept in mind. And Talk just us through the tech. Sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I'm talking down a bit at Singapore, but I'm still, uh, just to put it into context, I came here five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I started yeah. a Singaporean. Yeah. Um, I've obtained permanent residence, and I can see myself here for the majority of not all of my career. Um, it's a wonderful place to live. Uh, you know, it's good weather all year round. Some may say hot, but at least it's consistent, not like Scotland or the UK where it's miserable for weeks on end. Um, the food is greater. Um, yes, it is can be an expensive city to live in, um, but what I'd say is, <clears throat> if I'm only paying, you know, 10, 11% of my salary into tax, um, not having to pay social security as an expat, I can basically choose where my money goes to. Um, whereas if I live in Australia or live in the UK, 30% of it has been taken away from me. I've got no choice on that. Um, so yes, I pay more here on accommodation. Um, if I I could spend a lot less on food, or I could spend a lot more on food, depending on what I wanted to eat. Same with alcohol. Same with buying a car. Um, so it's my choice what I spend my money on here. So I can I could save a lot of money. Um, I know a lot of expats who don't save any money because they go out drinking. They live in really nice apartments. And they eat Western food, um, which is a lot more expensive here. Um, but I know a lot of expats who do the complete opposite. They save a lot of money because low taxes. They go and eat hawker food, which is incredible uh, and dirt cheap. Um, and you know they they're a bit more they're a bit more wary of where they rent and how much alcohol they consume. And and they don't buy a car. They just take grab everywhere, which is cheap over here as well. Adrian, this is important because you touch up on a point here which um, could go slightly political and that's not my intention, but basically what you're saying is give people the choice and teach them mm. to be responsible themselves for their money and that they have to take care of themselves. And is that really the feature then which leads to those lower tax rates? And also from a scheme overall, because the GSD was only introduced in 2004, if I'm not mistaken, is there a theme here? go away from these taxes which affect your um, consumption patterns and your behaviour and go to indirect taxes like the GSD, which are less distortive? Uh, it's a really good question. And I actually honestly don't know what I think about that, the answer to that. Um, and I'll try to explain a bit of what my reasoning there. 
Um, I think the government in a lot of places tries to dictate what uh, happens in a Singaporean's life. Um, so we can touch on CPF in, in due course, but you know, it's a forced saving. So every, every, what I'd say is everything in Singapore, generally the person has to look after themselves. They have to fund it themselves. So one of the first things I noticed when I came here is gen, the general knowledge of um, finance, you know, how to save for retirement, how to self-insure, is much, the financial literacy in Singapore is much higher than in the UK. Um, people were just generally more aware of what they had to do and, and what would be sensible um, for their future lives over here. Um, but at the same time, um, the government uh, forces some of the savings. Um, so CPF is a central provident fund. It's like a social security system or like a pirate pension, a bit like your superannuation, where, you know, generally speaking, 20% of my salary is taken from me as an employee contribution and an employer put 17% in and that is there for three pots basically one pot is for um, medical so you can spend it on medical um, issues that you have or medical services one pot is reserved for retirement you can't do anything until retirement and then the other pot is reserved for retirement as well but you can dip into it for housing and educational purposes so again, the government is forcing you to save for these and then dictating what you can spend it on at the same time. Um, and, and GST, you're right, there is a move towards GST in Singapore. It was actually 94 when it was actually launched here. And um, it's, it's an example of how Singapore plans in their head. So in 2018, um, Heng Swee Kate, the finance minister, uh, deputy prime minister, he announced that our GST rate would increase from 7% to 9% um, at some point between 2021 and 2025. So he said this in 2018. Um, so, you know, and he gave the reasons why, you know, age, typical reasons, a bit like Australia, aging population, um, it, uh, less babies are being born. I think, you know, the replacement ratio is 2.1. So for every couple, you need to have 2.1 kids to replace the general population without immigration. I think in Singapore, it's dipped to 1.4, 1.3. So quite low um, in, in Singapore. Um, and so they've said that they need more money to, to spend on this aging, aging population. Uh, and they've already said that they're going to increase it by 2%. Um, but this is a country, when he announced it, that budget was in a surplus. So they'd collected more taxes than they spent. They collect around 50 billion a year. Um, and over the parliamentary term, they're meant to break even effectively. But I think broadly, they're in surplus most parliamentary terms. Um, and it's a country where they've built up enormous reserves. So you've probably heard of their sovereign funds, Temesac, GIC, for example. Um, so with this COVID, for example, that's come in um, recently, a lot of governments have obviously spent a lot of money to prop up the economy. Uh, Singapore's done the same. Singapore's spent about 100 billion. So two times the tax revenue for a year, um, about a fifth, I think, maybe a quarter of the GDP in Singapore. They've spent that over the last three, four months or committed to spend that. Um, but Singapore's not in debt. 
that is all money from historic reserves. Um, so where other countries, you know, I don't know about Australia, but I suspect it's probably the same as UK. You know, where's the credit card? Can I keep borrowing? Or, or the US, let's keep printing. <laughs> How much can we print? Um, Singapore hasn't actually borrowed anything. They've just dipped into past reserves. Um, they have committed to returning the money to the reserves. I'm not sure what period that's over. But given that they haven't had to borrow money, they're in a really strong position to do what they want with their tax system. Um, they could just write it off. I don't think they will. Um, and they obviously they're, 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 they're showing that they're moving towards that GST by increasing that GST. Because to be honest with you, it's very difficult for any country to raise any other taxes. I mean, corporate taxes globally have been falling year on year. Um, Obviously, there's the transfer pricing, the OECD part to basically maybe grab some more taxes for each country. But even there, you've got, you know, countries in Europe applying digital taxes and then US going, I don't like you doing digital taxes because basically you're taxing my country's technology companies, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. Um, so what else is left if you don't do corporate taxes? You've got individual taxes, but individuals are very mobile. Singapore's got a low tax rate, partly to bring in wealth from other countries. I mean, it's one of the largest offshore wealth centers in the world. Um, I suspect tax rates have something to do with it. No tax on interest, pretty much no tax on dividends. We don't have a capital gain system. Um, there's no inheritance tax at the moment. They scrapped inheritance tax um, a while back. So, you know, for high net worth individuals, so like Mr. Messon, Messner, you know, coming to Singapore could make sense. You know, all the capital gains he makes, you wouldn't have to pay tax in Singapore. All that interest that he earns, all that dividends he earns from, you know, all the wisely invested money from his uh, tax banter podcasts. He wouldn't have to pay tax in Singapore if he did that. It sounds so. tempting, Adrian. <laughs> However, when I realised that a car, let's talk about a little Mitsubishi Lancer, <laughs> costs you the equivalent of $250,000 and you're only allowed to keep the car for 10 years. If you want to keep it there after, you need to pay another $250,000, provided a permit is even available at that point. I quickly decided that, well, hang on, as I get older, um, Singapore was beautiful in terms of text, but um, yeah, how do you get the kids to the soccer practice if you uh, don't have a car to take them in? But that's I'll fascinating. Tell you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, Michael, you know, you get your maid, which you pay like a thousand bucks a month to have, um, and then you put them in a grab car, which costs peanuts to yeah. send them off. As I said earlier, it's up to you what you spend your money on. You could spend that 200000 on the car, or you could hire a maid and put the, put your little kids in grab grab taxis all, all year round. That's right. And just to give our listeners a bit of an impression, an apartment, well, when I moved away in uh, 2011, an apartment cost you about a nice apartment, government subsidised, the normal HDB housing, cost you probably about half a million dollars. Uh, a Mitsubishi Lancer cost you another quarter million dollars. Yet Singaporeans did not complain that. Instead, they complained about the fact that the hockey noodles cost you now $3.20 instead of $3 for a meal. So, um, uh, different pressure points when it comes to pricing in itself. So, so Adrian, 
you mentioned low taxes and you mentioned a bit to tax base. Talk us through it. Um, it's fascinating. No CGT, no tax on interest, no tax on, um, on dividend. They're taxed at source in the company, effectively at the company tax rate. Now, what does a, an individual look at tax rate-wise and what does a company look at? And you mentioned mm. some stories about um, small businesses potent in a company potentially not even having to pay any tax at all in the first place. Yeah, so just to clarify some of that, yeah, uh, interest generally no tax if it's sent from an MAS bank. So there is tax on interest generally. So if company A lends to company B, etc. Um, so <clears throat> what do companies pay tax on and what do individuals pay tax on? So the individual tax rate goes up to 22% here. Um, but you need to be earning over 300 odd thousand to get there. So it's quite a high tax rate. There are quite a number of bands. So if you're earning, but there's quite a lot of reliefs as well. So tax rate starts at, I can't remember, like 2%, 3% um, after you've earned like 20,000, 30,000, depending on the reliefs available to you. That's when we start um, paying 19%. Sorry, sorry that's 19? We, that, that's the mark, $20,000. Wow. That's where we start paying tax at 19%. And when, that, when do you start paying more than 22% then? Um, uh, from $37,000 onwards. Wow. Um, so, as I was saying earlier, come to Singapore. Um, so, <laughs> if if you were paying, if you if you were earning over two hundred thousand, you'd reach the nineteen percent band. Mm. So, I guess you'd there's reach. no need for personal services income provisions, which we have in Australia. Yeah, you you you'd be familiar with. You don't. Do you have anything similar in Singapore? Would there be no need? Um, not specifically, and and I guess some of the reasons behind that is. Um, the tax rates are similar between individual and corporate. Yeah. Obviously, there are differences. So corporate rates go up to seventeen percent. And as Michael mentioned earlier, so if you're if you're uh, for the first so many, there is an exemption amount on on taxes. So it's almost like a slab rate of taxes, but they don't calculate it that way. And if you're a new company, you may get some exemptions as well for the first couple of years on on up to three hundred thousand worth of income. Um, but you know people do plan around it you know they set up multiple companies for instance or they put their personal money into a company um, there are rules around it I mean we do have a general anti-avoidance rule and and you know if you're setting up multiple companies so a lot of doctors did this they set up one doc one one company for I don't know part of the practice one company for another part of the practice and there's and IRS are not and the government here are quite open to um, challenging them and putting it in a newspaper. And I think almost the shame of having it in the newspaper is a deterrent enough from a lot of people doing it. Um, but I do know that there are still people doing it and IRS are actively chasing it. But you've got to remember, this is a country where um, the government knows exactly what you're doing. There are so many CCTV cameras around, but there's also so much data around. Everyone here has an ID number, an ID card. Um, everything, as I said, you know, tax and immigration are all linked up. They know exactly what's going on, but that transpires across the board. Um, companies have a single login to all government services. So what you're doing on one side, they know about what you're doing on the other side. Um, so in theory, they've got all the data there. They could crunch the numbers and figure out who is minimizing their taxes uh, and, and target those specifically. Um, so we do do some work in terms of, you know, 
corporates versus individuals how do you extract profits how do you get yourself paid but always cognizant in the fact that you know with a or i guess almost a transfer pricing um overview uh, try to make sure that people are remunerated appropriately um and not push it too much partly because if you push it too much and you get challenged the the consequences is really not worth it mm. um yeah does, does this come into play for uh, an Australian shareholder, for example? So an Australian mm -hmm. shareholder that might, might run a successful business over here mm -hmm. in Australia, corporate entity, moves over to Singapore, uh, which is a common scenario yeah, we that we're, what we're talking about, right? Um, so does that, does that individual have any problems with, uh, with income that he might be considered to be supposed, supposed to be earning for, for the Australian company while he's sitting in Singapore? So um, we do see a lot of Australians coming over to Singapore, um, and I guess it depends on the structure that they've got in place. So if he's just purely an employee of, a sing of an Australian entity, then if he's coming and sitting himself over here and, and working, obviously you need to be wary of you know, the corporate side of things, whether you know, he creates a permanent establishment for the Australian entity in the first instance. Mm. And then I guess from an expat side, um, you've got to remember immigration because he still needs to get to Singapore and be able to work. Um, and, you know, employ, uh, in order to get the right immigration status, most professionals will go for an employment pass, which is the, the skills um, work permit effectively. It has a, I think it's now moved up to 3,900 minimum monthly salary. So that goes not paying zero. You have to pay at least 3,900. But probably more importantly, um, a bit like everything else, um, there's no definitive guidance. It's a bit like a black box. Um, they don't tell you exactly what you need to get an employment pass. Like they don't tell you exactly what you need to get a permanent residence. Um, you make an application and they will consider it, all the facts and circumstances before making an acceptance of that, uh, that work permit. And the things that they will look at is, what's this guy's education? Um, what is his experiences? What's his CV look like? Um, what is the role he's doing? Does his CV support the role that he's doing? And does his salary support the role that he's doing? So if you've got an Australian coming to Singapore already, you need to pay them a, a reasonable amount to justify the immigration status and to get the work permits. So there's almost your your initial checks and balances for expats coming in. Um, you, you can't just go, he's getting paid nothing, he's just getting dividends. Mm. Because if you said that, you wouldn't get a work permit anyway. Mm. Although it, so, it does it does play into um, the hands of the differentials in tax that you you wouldn't yes. mind necessarily to be paying yourself an income while sitting in Singapore mm -hmm. uh, when you're getting a tax deduction potentially at thirty percent in Australia. Yeah, uh, well, I guess if you're the employee there again, that um, you still have permanent establishment to consider. So, mm. uh, and also to get a work permit, you need to have a local sponsor. Mm. Yes. Um, so there'll be obviously costs with setting up a Singapore entity to employ you. Um, an appropriate charge must be charged to the Singapore entities to have profits, which they need to pay profits here. And then obviously repatriation. I don't know, Australia might uh, tax the dividends going back. So yeah, yeah you're right though. Um, there is a tax optimization that you can look into, but there is still a lot of hoops and and things that you need to check off before you get to the, the right answer. And obviously with the applications for setting up a company, running it, um, audit requirements, 
So um, in Singapore, every company needs to be audited unless it falls under the small company exemption. Um, and as part of the small company exemption, they look at it as the group level. So they don't just look at the the Singapore entity in isolation, they would consider the Australian entity as well. So if you don't meet that, then you've got to pay for an audit, um, you know, meet all the rules here. So depending on what numbers we're talking about, it may be worthwhile considering it may not actually be profitable, if profitable is the right word to use in this case. Adrian, can you get around some of those limitations and, and what's the general use of trusts here in Australia? We love our trusts simply because they're one of the um, few ways how we can actually income split. Mind you, I acknowledge in, in Singapore due to the low rates, you probably don't have much of an interest in income splitting in the first place. So many Aussies that come over to Singapore, they would probably um, have a trust, most likely a discretionary trust, which means that the trustee, usually an Australian um, limited company, um, has a discretion every who they distribute profit to and then those beneficiaries get taxed um, under Australian tax law on that distribution they receive. What's the treatment with regard to trusts and are they popular in Singapore and what would you say to an Aussie moving over to Singapore who's got a discretionary trust? What would be a first port of call? Um, trusts are really interesting in Singapore in the fact that um, you don't see them as often. Um, in my, unless you're talking about ultra high wealth people. Um, our child of individuals because obviously there's costs involved with trusts and Singaporeans as with some of the Asian neighbors don't like to pay fees and they want to keep things as cheap as possible so the fact that you have to pay for a trustee you've got to pay for uh, setting up the trust you have to give up control to a certain degree they are already items which puts people off setting up trusts um, but you know Trusts are widely used, um, especially in the family office arena um, for other reasons uh, like asset protection, ease of passing uh, assets intergenerational and through family office structures in Singapore. Um, but addressing your question in particular, um, if, if someone has got a trust set up and is a beneficiary trust and is coming to Singapore, um, there is a high chance that anything they receive from the trust is probably not going to be taxed. Um, but you just need to review that trust to make sure that that is the case. But then again, putting something into structure and trust here, generally, you're still going to be taxed on employment earnings in Singapore. Um, as I said before, dividends, one tier taxation isn't taxed, so you wouldn't use a trust to avoid tax on dividends. Um, capital gains uh, yeah in Singapore there's no capital gains tax but obviously if you sell something you need to decide a bit like Australia I believe is it income is it capital gains what's the nature of the transaction the frequency of the transaction all those wonderful case law from the UK that we rely on and I presume Australia also relies on as well as your own case law um, they're, they're all cognizant when you when you do all that planning um, but what trust I see used as is for family office purposes so Singapore wants to be wants to bring wealthy people to Singapore um, so you can get a PR status through investment. I think it's 2.5 million Singapore dollars that you need to invest here, which is pretty high. Um, but you can you can get tax exemption on a lot of things um, in Singapore if you set up a family office. So if if you have a an advisor here and you, you know they buy and sell assets for you like shares and things like that, you still need to worry. No capital gains, but is it trading? Is there a business being conducted? 
Um, but if you set up a family office here, then pretty much most of that goes to zero. Um, the fee to the the fee to the advisors obviously can still be taxed, but all the investment income, a lot of that will fall out of tax. Um, and then you might go to me, oh well, why why set up in Singapore? Just set up in Channel Islands or BVI. It's tax exempt there anyway. But if it's managed from Singapore, managed from Hong Kong, those countries are likely to try to tax it because it's managed and controlled in that country. Um, and obviously, you talk about Cavens being the BVI. There's a lot of spotlight on those countries through, you know, grey lists, backlists, um, needing to have, you know, substance in those countries, which is quite hard to achieve. Well, you can do that all in Singapore. You can have substance here. It's a country you're more likely to visit from Australia than the Cayman Islands. It's a bit closer. Um, and you've got lots of fellow Australians here. Um, it's easy to travel around the region. Um, and you've got certainty that you've got the tax exemption because you get it's, a, it's in the code. You get an exemption with the government there. And you've got, I can't remember now, 80, 90 double taxation agreements that you can rely on as well to reduce withholding taxes if possible. Whereas if you're on the Cayman Islands, you're not going to get any reduced withholding um, for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, we see Australians do come to Singapore a lot, but I think one of the challenges is for you guys, uh, Australian ATO is quite aggressive. And then the question becomes, are they not resident in Australia? Have they managed to break that tax net? Um, have they managed to come to the nirvana of a low tax country and leave the horrible, horrible um, ATO or whatever? Um, and, and we do see a lot of companies setting up in Singapore, you know, having subs here, try to um, put substance here and, and tax on the profit at 17% rather than 30% in Australia. Some have done it more successfully than others. Obviously, Rio Tinto and BHP didn't quite manage theirs well enough. So I think they had to pay quite large fines as well as taxes when, when it got challenged at ATO. Um, but, you know, as long as you've got a genuine reason to be here, you've got, you know, substance here. Singapore government, you know, again, foresight. They've been mandating substance here for many years before OECD started them imposing it, so to speak. Um, and they won't they won't issue um, certificate of residence without you being able to show certain things. So if you can't show that board of directors are having their board meetings here, you won't get a certificate of residence for investment holding companies. You even need to have you know employees with a certain designation or certain management controls in order to get residence for that holding company in Singapore. So Singapore's trying very hard. I think. Going back a bit, they were on one of the grey lists at one point, and they've always Singapore does not want to be on any of those lists. So they've tried really, really hard to, you know, play ball, so to speak, or to impose the generally accepted, the global accepted, you know, um, things that will keep them on the white list. Um, so they've been very, very clever, I think, and very deliberate in the way that they've positioned Singapore in the global market. Um, which is why I'm still here. Um, yes, going back to Michael's early comment about low taxes, I still think Singapore is an area where there's a lot of companies who will set up here and they will still need tax advice. No matter how simple taxes are, you will still need tax advice to just get it ticked off. Um, even though it's low taxes, you still need transfer pricing documentation if you meet certain rules. Um, and it's not a country that you will want to 
flout the rules, so to speak. Adrian, this is fascinating stuff, and you touched up on something that I want to ask about, if you don't mind. Um, mm. Taxes are low. What is available in terms of startup funding? What's available in terms of R&D funding? I heard a, a, an insane number, and I don't know whether I've got this right in the past, about R&D funding from the Singapore government, and I don't want to throw the number out there in case I'm wrong, but tell us a bit about this startup funding um, and, and R&D funding, just encouragement for businesses to set up in Singapore. What's available from that point of view? Yeah, and obviously this is going into the areas which I'm not as well aware of, but you're right, Singapore, going back to you know their vision, they target certain industries quite aggressively. So I talked about 17% tax rates. Um, they've got incentives to reduce that tax rate. So for example, if you're trading certain metals, you can go into the global trader program, which will reduce your tax rate to 5%. Um, if you are, you know, moving significant functions to Singapore, you're going to employ local employees, um, you're going to do X, Y, Z, you can get funding um, and you can get tax exemptions or incentives for setting up in Singapore. Um, there's, there is a, I think the, the government targets these sectors and will welcome them with open arms, which is why companies like Dyson have relocated to Singapore because I suspect the government um, provided a lot of incentives to him and grants to him. You know, it could be waivers on rents, it could be reduced tax rates, it could be cash grants, it could be um, reduced taxes. Um, so some of the other ones that I'm aware of is, you know, we had our version of um, R&D, we've got our version of R&D. We even had something called PIC payouts, where if you were training your employees, you could get cash payments or 400%, 300% deductions against your tax liability. So, but that's closed. I saw your face. Impressive <laughs> numbers. Closer, closing it because there were some, uh, there were some people cheating the system. Um, so I think people were going around, you know, and it was all to do with innovation and improving um, uh, or improving the acceptance of technology as well. So a lot of people go, Ah, oh, Hawker, you need iPads. We'll sell you iPads. You can get all these credits for you. We'll charge you a fee. Um, they never implement the system. They collect the handouts, the cash, et cetera, et cetera. So there were a number of people put to jail as a result of all those handouts. And I think there's probably a number of cases ongoing. So, and, you know, as I said, it's you can't hide. So why bother? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why they did that. But yeah, there's been some people who've been caught up in all that wonderful stuff. So hopefully that answers part of the question there. There, there is a, a, an organization called Economic Development Board, and I think who are you know, specifically looking at companies who are trying to come to Singapore. So on their website, they have a list of different uh, funding schemes, grant schemes, um, incentive schemes that companies can apply for. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Adrian. So you touched up on the Central Provident Fund earlier. Um, what, what's what's the role of the fund um, and, and, and how does it work? And what, what's the taxation of your retirement savings in there? Surely one could argue that if tax rates are so low, you don't pay tax on, in, on dividends, for example, and uh, interest from a MAS bank, i.e. a licensed bank from the Monetary Authority of Singapore is not taxable. Why bother in the first place? Uh, why bother with the CPF? That's right. Always. Um, it's, it's a, 
so the government's quite interesting how they they play the cpf and i still can't believe it and i'm happy to contribute to it and i'll explain why um the money that you have in the cpf i mentioned is split into three funds um there's the medical broadly the medical retirement and other um in both the the medical and the retirement they pay you interest of four percent currently um and you know i can't see them defaulting on that money being singapore given that they are as i said earlier they're not in debt so the money i have in those two funds i can't touch until i retire same with any pension scheme globally um but they're paying four percent and then the other one that i mentioned they're paying i think two and a half percent is the base rate that they pay which again is not too shabby um, and i can use that against um a mortgage if i have a mortgage if i want to buy a property i can use it against the property as well um and and so the benefits of putting money into this obviously there's some mandatory parts anyway so i don't have a choice um but tax exemption on the way in so I think that's similar to super tax exemption on the way in. Yeah. Um, tax free growth whilst in the fund, whilst in the CPF fund. So that 4% is gross. Nothing's taken off me. And the kicker, which is completely different from the UK and the US in most cases, is it's tax exempt on the way out. So tax exempt on the way in, tax exempt growth, tax exempt on the way out, um, and paid 4% in, in parts of their account, pretty much risk free. Um, and I think when I hit 55, uh, there is a number which I have to have in the account and anything above that I can withdraw immediately. Um, and wow. that number that I have to have in the account, I believe it's basically locked and then at 62 or something like that, they pay, start paying an annuity out of it. So, so you can add extra into this fund? Um, there are rules, but yes, you can add extra into it. There are some caps every year, and there are caps to how much tax relief you can get every year, but you can add more into that fund. Um, it gets a little bit complicated. Singapore loves to keep things simple and complicate things, and they're very technical. So there are different rules for each of the baskets. Um, so the medical account, there is a cap on it. So once you hit the cap, anything flows into the retirement one. And once you hit the cap of the retirement, it flows into the other one. And then the two ways that you can top up, there are different rules and different caps on those as well. But yeah, you can potentially top up. Um, we do have another retirement scheme available, which is not as well used as far as I understand, called the SRS, the Supplementary Retirement Scheme. Um, that one you can contribute into, um, I think, as a non-PR, non-citizen, so expats can put about 35 grand into it or 37 grand into it, and locals can put about 15,000 into it. That one you get tax relief on the way in, tax-free growth, but half of it's tax on the way out. So it's still good, only half of it's tax on the way out. Um, but And that that is locked until you're 62 at the moment. Um, but you can withdraw it earlier. You just get penalised for it. I think it's a five percent penalty. Um, so it's, it's it's still better than some of the retirement schemes globally. Um, but that's another option. Um, so so there are reasons why you might put money into those because of the guaranteed part. Going back to your question, Michael. Um, but obviously, if you hit the caps, then yeah, you you don't have that option anyways. Um, the one thing I have found is, yes, it's great from a tax perspective. Um, and you can invest into funds and other investments 
um, but that's quite restrictive in what you can invest in. And ironically, in my opinion, I may be wrong, so I'll caveat that. In my opinion, ironically, although Singapore is a wealth manager hub, and there's a lot of offshore funds here, what you can invest in in the CPF and SRS are generally, you know, those unit trusts which are quite expensive. Um, you don't have the same access to cheap ETFs, exchange traded funds, where you know you get exposure to global markets at quite low costs. So yes, you can buy into unit trusts, but they're usually the more expensive ones, and therefore eats into your returns, uh, which is ironic given that it is a wealth management hub. How about Bitcoin, Adrian? Can you put it all in Bitcoin? Uh, I'll give you one guess. Given the That's conservative nature of Singapore, no. Uh, <laughs> you can buy Bitcoin here, but not through any of those. Can you buy Bitcoin in your um, super? Unfortunately, you can. Yes, you can. You can? You can. Wow. You can That's even own... That's a lot of caveats. You, you can even <laughs> a own lot of race, race horses and run property development businesses. Having said that, <laughs> if the answer was no, the outcome would probably be better for the fund as well at times. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I guess the fund is charging based on assets under management as well. That's right. You could potentially have a self-managed fund as well, where you do it all yourself. And that's where we see some of the more funky investments. Um, Just to provide a bit of color on that as well, um, I remember from my days in Singapore, the contribution rate to the CPF is rather high. Um, The government likes to manipulate the rate at times to stimulate the economy and take a bit of steam out of the economy. And um, when I still lived there until 2011, I think it was 25% of your salaries and wages go from the employer into CPF and another 15% you had to put in yourself? Does that roughly still stand? Uh, Not quite. Similar, but not quite. So from an employee perspective, um, on your monthly ordinary earnings, um, it's 20% contribution on the employee side and 17% from the employer, assuming you're under 55 and um, you're third year of PR or citizen. So the first two years of PR, because you're transitioning into it, you get lower rates. Um, And as I said earlier, expats, you can't contribute. Um, So 20% and 17% um, up to the first 6,000 of your ordinary wages. And then if you receive additional wages like bonuses, one-off payments, then um, a portion of that would also be subject to CPF as well. And the caps there are slightly more complicated. It's basically, I think, 105,000 less whatever you've used for the ordinary wages. So if you earn more than 6,000 a month, then the cap is basically 30,000. If you earn less than 6,000, the cap goes up. So the total cap for ordinary and additional is 105 at the moment. But yeah, they do change it from time to time. Um, and um, CPF is quite an emotive topic. Um, some of the commentators, myself included to a certain degree, um, disagree that you can use some of it for accommodation, for housing, because it kind of adds to the fuel that everyone should buy a house and increase house prices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if, if you're trying to get it to purely safe for retirement, then why is it? Why is it not just purely safe for retirement? Um, Obviously, Asians love their property, so maybe that's one of the reasons why you can buy property using it. Um, And, you know, Michael mentioned the price of property in Singapore. Um, Yes, you can buy HDB half a million. Yeah, you get a decent HDB there. Um, HDB is the government housing, 
Um, so I think about 80% give or take live, 80% of the Singaporeans live in government provided housing, which is HDB. Um, but there's effectively a two tier market here. You've got the HDBs and then you've got the private properties like condos, landed property, um, which is like detached property, um, bungalows, etc. cetera. Um, and although Michael said half a mil on the HDB, which is completely correct, um, expats, you can't buy HDB. If you wanted to buy something, you'd have to buy a condo. And if you replace half a million with one and a half million, you're getting there, if not more. Um, especially in the central regions, um, and obviously depending on size that you're looking for so, and so forth. But yeah, one and a half million starting is probably where you're looking, unless you're looking for a studio flat or you're looking far, far away. So, and everything here is 99 years, pretty much. There are some freehold, but most of it's 99 years, and you can't extend that 99 year lease unless you're a property developer. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic over here in terms of the properties and putting the tax aspect on it, I guess. Um, if you wanted to buy a property, um, like a lot of countries globally, you know, there's additional rules for foreigners trying to buy property. Um, if you were any of yourselves trying to buy a property in Singapore, you, you know, pay the price, pay stamp duty, which I think is up to 4% now, on anything over a million. And then there's an additional stamp duty. And that additional stamp duty is dependent on your immigration status and the number of properties that you own. So a Singaporean buying their first property, zero additional stamp duty. A foreigner buying their first property, 20% stamp duty. 20%. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, there and, and that's part, part of that reason is to obviously curb the amount of foreigners buying property in Singapore presumably predominantly mainland Chinese, Indonesian, maybe Malaysian, coming in and snapping at property. So all those buying that's 20% um, upfront cost. Um, so, and if you get PR, um, it's only 5% for the first property. And then for citizens and PR, the more properties you own, the higher that rate goes to avoid, you know, buying rental property, speculation, etc., etc. You're touching up on a point there that is very popular with Australian investors. We love our investment properties, especially yeah. negatively geared investment properties. And oh, that just yeah, means that. we have losses, losses galore. And unlike in the UK, those losses aren't quarantined. So we can offset them from our other income. Um, what's the tax treatment like for an investment property in Singapore then when you rent that out? We don't have the same. It's a bit more like the UK. You can't offset those losses against ordinary income. Um, so tough luck so to speak um yeah we it's how to describe it in the property side REITs are really popular here and i'll touch on those in a second but if you were to buy your own individual property and rent it out yeah it's taxed at your ordinary rates you know you get your deduction for the normal things like mortgage interest you know advertising uh, agents um but you know losses aren't that useful over here you can offset against property, but not much more from what I understand. Um, REITs, on the other hand, are a big business in Singapore. Um, probably because, you know, well, as I said, Asians love property, but um, the REIT itself, I understand, is not taxed if it's set up correctly. And as an individual, if you receive the, the distributions, because REITs are set up to mandate 
I think 80-90% of distributions of their profits. Um, those profits aren't taxed on you as either as an individual. So you could try it yourself, you know, pay the 20%, pay uh, the city costs uh, and pay taxes, or you can buy REITs and get, you know, monthly, quarterly, annually um, share of rents um, tax-free. So yeah, so it's a it's a different market here. If you, uh, interestingly enough, if you look at the Singapore Stock Exchange, and this is something I didn't know until I came here, I thought you know financial centre it would have an amazing stock exchange. You'll have loads of global companies, um, but if you compare it to Hong Kong, it is completely dwarfed by Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong you've got international companies like Alibaba, Tencent, um, and others. In Singapore, predominantly it is Singapore government owned companies and some others and it doesn't seem to be a dynamic market compared to other countries um so the main constituency is a lot of property invested property developments as you'd expect you know you've got a lot of banks the dbs uobs of the world um, and then you've got a lot of reits reits is where sgx or the the stock exchange has done really well um in my opinion the equity market not so well Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you very much, Adrian. I think that gave us a very comprehensive overview of the tech system. And uh, I, I think one um, notion that's coming through massively as well is almost while, yes, uh, the tech side needs to be taken care of, at the end of the day, um, the, the, the taxpayers really focus on the economic um, outcome of the transaction primarily before any tax outcome. And that, that's quite a contrast to the Western world, probably what you're used to from the United States and the UK. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, <laughs> Singaporeans love to minimise the taxes as well, but obviously, as the other Michael mentioned earlier, um, the cost-benefit analysis is just not the same as if you're advising in the UK or US, um, just because of the pure mechanics, the tax rates, and the simplicity of the tax system. Um, but there, you know, there is tax, still tax planning that we do for clients. Um, but it's just not to the same extent as, as the UK and US. And I remember from my early days in Singapore after uni, somebody told me if you want to make it big as an accountant, you become an auditor instead. So maybe that's on the card at some point in time then. God, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't think uh, there's a reason why I didn't enter as an auditor. Um, and there's a, I'm not even an accountant. Um, I don't hold any accounting qualifications, um, which is actually another interesting thing. So I've got pure tax qualifications. So chartered tax advisor in the UK, enrolled agent in the US, and obtaining my tax qualifications here. But the industry here, um, the majority of people we get interview are people who've done accounting and finance at university which is very different from my experience in the uk so i'm an economist um in my team we had others like you know history of art english geography lawyers mathematicians everything apart from accountants almost um but in 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 singapore what i found is um majority of people we see coming through the doors are all accountant trained i don't know if that's the same in australia very much so. Yeah. Mm. All right, excellent stuff. Well, Adrian, this has been a fantastic overview for us. Um, thank you so much. But I have to say, this wouldn't be a complete episode of Text Banter with us, um, uh, Text Heck from us, if we didn't play around of Text Banter trivia. 
I've talked it up before, and you're taking on the best in the field there is, and that's Lee and Hayes. Are you ready? I'm just hoping not to get knocked out in the first round. Look, um, the good news is here, we decided to be kind to you, um, simply because obviously Australian tax law is not your forte, despite you actually knowing quite a lot about it. So in this case, um, would you like to go first or um, do you want to leave it to Leanne Hayes? Uh, ladies first, obviously. Ladies first. Okay, Lee, first question for you. Mm. The name La Rosa should ring a bell with you. He is a famous taxpayer who did something remarkable for Australia. Who is he and what did he do? Was he the guy from WA that had the um, claim the deduction for um, the buried uh, treasure being cash in his backyard or something like that, that he had set aside to purchase trading stock? And I'm using inverted commas there, um, which was, I think, um, funds from his illicit drug trade. Um, and he um, successfully argued that she, he should be entitled to a deduction when those funds were stolen. Correctly, that's 100% right. So Adrian, this is how Australian tax law works. We have a convicted heroin dealer in Australia. The ATO is onto the case and realises when he was arrested, he had a lot of money on him. And um, therefore the ATO just used the deeming method to deem his income because um, yeah. dealing drugs, that constitutes a business and therefore is taxable income. I yeah. assume that would probably be the last concern of the Singapore government instead. No, be you'll be dead before you get there. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, having said that, as, as Lee pointed out, his lawyer were arguing, hang on, at a recent drug deal procuring stock, um, $220,000 got stolen from him and therefore she should be able to get a tax deduction that went via the tribunal to the federal court and then the full federal court and it was a win for the taxpayer. He was wow. entitled to his $220,000 tax deduction. Very good, Lee. I think wow. that's a point you just got there. Well done, Lee. How can I compete with that? Just on a side note, um, the US is really interesting because in their publications, it says if you have stolen goods, you have to report that as taxable income unless you return those goods to the person you stole them from within the same year. <laughs> <laughs> within the same doesn't talk about, doesn't talk about deductions <laughs> just the income side <laughs> I just thought that would be something different absolutely and deflect brilliant. deflect before I get the next question wrong you can't get this question wrong there's only one right answer here obvious but it's a pretty straightforward one there were 71 Ashes series in total between England and Australia <laughs> I'm not a cricket fan but carry on <laughs> of the two countries playing Australia and England which country won the most Asher series? I'm going to go with England. I suspect it's wrong, but I, I have to support England in this case. Unfortunately, yeah. Adrian, I told you there's only one right answer, and it is Australia. By a whisk of the 71 series played, Australia won 33, England won 32, and there were six draws. Okay, oh. so um, Australians... England are very good at creating sports but not winning them. Uh, pretty saying. much, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. like to think so. I'd like to think so at times. <laughs> All right. Talking about famous people, Adrian, you would have a couple of famous uh, clients amongst your clients, I assume? Uh, I can neither divulge that or, or give you any information about that. We take that as a straight yes, and that leads us to our second question for Lee. Lee, this is for the win right here. What was mm -hmm. the ATO's safe harbour rate for the distribution of a profit from an individual's personal fame or image under PCG 2017 D11 before it was withdrawn in August 2018? I think it was 
That is right. So what a famous person could do in Australia is they could license their personal fame or image, i.e. their beautiful face would um, appear on a cornflakes box and a royalty would be paid to a discretionary trust. We discussed discretionary trust earlier, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, you could distribute to other taxpayers. We went to town on that until in 2017, the ATO said, well, slow down here. 10% is your safe harbour. And we begrudgingly accepted that until what happened thereafter? Well, our politicians announced they would stop the ability to income split these type of income items. The ATO promptly withdrew the safe harbour, but ever since then, we have not seen a change in the law. So what is the safe harbour at the moment? Well, there is none. Another introduction into tax law in Australia. A lot of uncertainty. We live in constant fear. Adrian, not all is lost at this point in time. You can redeem yourself on the second question. Are you ready for this one? Go for it. In total, as part of the 71 Ashes series, 335 games were played. Who won more games, Australia or England? This sounds such like a trick question. (laughs) I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go for England again. I told that. you there's only one right answer here. And of course it's Australia. <laughs> Australia won 136 of the matches, while England only won 108, and there were a total of 91 draws. So what that means is pretty much I it's think long going, agree that Australia plays better cricket. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm Asian, so badminton is the sport for me. That's right, and you're Scottish, right? So who cares about um, it? Yeah, and curling, obviously. Fantastic. Adrian, thank you so much for coming onto our show. It's been absolutely fantastic and we hope to have you back at some point in time. Um, that is it from me. If anyone else has any other questions for Adrian, obviously please do ask him while we still have the opportunity. Just thank you from my side and I get clearly I need to support Australia more or swat up a bit more on cricket. Um, <laughs> absolutely. And that's how you solve any text dispute with the ATO, a pint or as we call it an amber and uh, a bit of cricket and you will win that dispute. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't come to Australia then because I suspect I would lose every case in that, in that case. <laughs> Adrian, I thought many years ago that I'd stay in Singapore for a long time and yet I'm back in Australia. So we'll welcome you here with open arms. Text trainer at Text Banter. There's a job waiting here for you. Gotcha. And then I can have my millions and, and then move back to Singapore and, and pay little tax on it. That's mm-hmm. right. Yes, thank you very much, Adrian. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Tax Shack. I've been chatting with fellow tax banter trainers Michael Mesner and Leanne Han- Hayes, along, of course, with Adrian Sham from Singapore. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or guests. You can also get onto the Tax Shack team on email podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au slash banter.blog, banter slash blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take the moment to rate our and write a review for the show wherever you are. It'll help us improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to joining us next time. Thank you.